The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Penny, and I'm the senior pastor here. And uh, friends, it is good to be together for us to uh, come to God's word and to sing and to pray and in a little while to come to his table. But uh, if you are new with us, if you're visiting, then uh, you're joining us in the second week of a four-week series looking, on, looking at the resurrection. So a couple weeks ago was Easter Sunday, and we joined with the churches around the world in celebrating that Christ is risen, that the tomb is empty, but, but the, the celebration of resurrection doesn't end with one day. For the believer, for Christians, we rejoice and celebrate over Christ's resurrection every day. It is, uh, it is the foundation of our faith, as we're going to hear in just a moment. So we're spending a few extra weeks looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 15. This is a passage where Paul spends 58 verses talking about the resurrection. And then last week, he laid the groundwork for us. He laid a foundation by telling us how the resurrection was true. That the resurrection isn't some fable, it's not a myth that's passed down from generation to generation, it's not some fictitious story, but that instead the Bible's account of Christ's resurrection is trustworthy. And this morning, building upon that, Paul's going to show us the implications of the resurrection. And so if you would, follow along, 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have a Bible, we'll be projecting the passage on the screen. In verse 12, Paul begins by writing, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those, who all, who, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? 
If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, it is our desire, our longing, our hope that we would walk with you all the days of our lives. It is our desire that our words and our hearts, our minds and our actions would be given over to you. And so we pray that as we come to this, your word, that your word and your spirit would change us that you would reveal our sin, that you would lead us to repentance, that you'd lead us in holiness. And so we ask that you would use your word powerfully in my life and in the lives of those who hear your word proclaimed, so that today and every day we would give you glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So like many of you, uh, when my family sits down for, the din- for dinner and we are gathered around the table, we all take turns going around sharing about our day. I imagine this is a common practice for many families here. We go around and everyone gets to take a turn about what happened, something that occurred, a, a conversation they had, maybe a class that they were sitting in. And so we each take a turn one at a time and we go around. And I've noticed that over the last few months as we've been doing this, as we've continued this practice, that there is a common theme that has been coming up again and again and again. This common theme comes from Mead. See, it seems like almost every single night when we sit to eat dinner, Mead talks about math. That's right, math. That's what we talk about at the Penny Legion family dinner table. Mead is taking math classes, and she loves math. It's fun. It's exciting. It stirs her imagination. And Kat, who also loves math, just is in, on cloud nine. She's enjoying this. This is wonderful, the conversations they're having. And Lane and Cole, though, though they're not quite as uh, exuberant with their enjoyment of math as, Lane, as Kat and Mead, they... They like it, and they're good at it, and so they follow along. And so these conversations are going around about parabolas and arcs and and line segments and equations, quadratic and others, and I sit there completely in the dark. (laughs) And that's not hyperbole. That's not me being self-deprecating. The truth is, is that my fifth through ninth grade children definitely know, love, and understand math better than their 43-year-old father. (laughs) But as I listen to them, as I sit and I hear them talk about these things that they're learning, the enjoyment that they're having in class, as they tell me about these equations, I don't sit there and go, well, well, that can't be true. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Like, certainly they've got it wrong, right? I don't sit there and think those things. No, instead, I listen attentively. And I try to make sense of it, and I trust what they're saying. And then I walk away from the table, and I don't give equations or parabolas or math a second thought. 
Now look, I, for, for those of you who like math out there, like please, please don't like hashtag Penny hates math or at me later, you know, like I know math is important. I know it's in the world. In fact, I, I love math when we're talking about the arc of a baseball landing behind the fence, but, but you know, the, I, I know it's important. And so I nod in agreement, but the truth is, is I give it very little thought. And I think that that's how some of us treat the resurrection. We know it's important. We know it's significant. But we give it very little thought. In fact, there was an atheist philosopher named Anthony Flew who once said that the evidence for the resurrection is better than for claimed miracles in any other religion. It's outstandingly different in quality and quantity from the evidence offered for the occurrence of most other supposedly miraculous events. Now, Anthony Flew eventually would become a deist, and as far as I know, never became a Christian. But you hear what he's saying. He's saying the evidence for the resurrection, it is great. The evidence for the resurrection, it is strong. In fact, it is stronger than the evidence for any other supposed miraculous event. And yet, he never embraced the truth of the resurrection. It had no impact on his life. And I think that that's how we can easily act functionally. We say, is it historical? Absolutely, yes. Is it true? Of course it is. Do we think about it at Easter? Well, everyone does. But when we're washing our dishes, and we head off to work, and we're running our kids to their next event, yes, it's important historically, but is it important personally? Well, there we may not be so sure. And yet, in our passage this morning, Paul is showing us that the resurrection isn't something that we just lay aside when we get on with our lives. Instead, the resurrection is something that impacts every aspect of our lives. And that's because the resurrection means that we have life. That's where Paul begins. That's his argument that he's making in verses 12 through 19. It's clear in his discussion of the resurrection that there were those in Corinth who they affirmed that Jesus himself had been resurrected, but they were denying that we, his followers, would be raised. You hear it in verses 12 through 13. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So you see, they're not questioning whether Jesus was raised or not. What they're questioning is whether followers of Jesus will be raised. And you see how Paul challenges that? He says, if those united with Christ aren't raised, if we remain in the grave, then Christ himself hasn't been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then all of this is for naught. And look at the implications of of there not being a resurrection. Paul says in verse 14, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 15, we lie about God's word. Verse 17, our hope is futile. Verse 18, those who have died have no hope. And verse 19, we of all the peoples of all the world should be the most pitied. In other words, if there is in this life only this life, then all we have is life, and then you die. If we won't be raised, then Christ hasn't been raised, and thus we are under God's judgment and still in our sins. That's what Paul says. 
But y'all, that's not who we are. That's not who we are. You see, the good news of the empty tomb and the good news of the gospel of Jesus is verse 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man also has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, what Paul is telling us is that we are not in our sins. That we are not still in our sins. We still sin, yes. But it is not our sins that mark us any longer. And the judgment for our sin and the death that we deserve for our sin, it has been taken by Christ. So that those who are looking to his resurrection, we are alive, not dead. You see, Jesus' resurrection doesn't just mean that he lives, it means that we live. But his resurrection also means that we have security. We see this in verses 23 through 28. Paul writes, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies over, under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So you see the order of how the events are going to go, how this is going to play out. Paul says Christ is risen. He is the first fruits. Now in using this language of first fruits, Paul is invoking the image of the harvest and of the offering of the first fruits from the Old Testament. And so what this would look like is that when the harvest time would come, the people of Israel, the farmers, they would go out, they would gather their harvest, and they would take their first, right, and their best, and they would offer it to the Lord. And what Paul is saying is that's who Jesus is. He is the first fruits of resurrection. He is the first and the best, but he's not only that. He is also the first fruits of those who would come after him. He is a representation of what is to come for the rest. So he is the first fruits, and then those who belong to him will rise. And then he will deliver the kingdom to God and destroy every rule and authority and power, and he will reign and death will be defeated forever. I mean, did you hear what he said? Every power and authority in this world and in the world we cannot see. Every power and authority, every prince, every king, every potentate, every president, all will come under the authority of Jesus. Every single one of them to the, to, to the point that even death itself will be defeated. I mean, think about that. There is no power or authority in the world that we can see or cannot see that has authority over death except for Christ. That is how powerful he is. That's how great his rule is that he can defeat the last enemy, death. And do you know what that means for us? It means because Jesus is over all things, that he reigns as king over this universe. It means because we belong to that king, that we are perfectly secure. 
that he has changed us, not just from being those who were dead to being those who were alive. Uh, the cry kid, Daniel LaRusso, he's uh, this kid who lived in New Jersey, and he moves to California. And as he moves to California, he doesn't know anyone, right? And Daniel's really tall and lean. He's kind of skinny, kind of weak. He's a little awkward. And he has no friends. He has no friends. And so he's at this new school. He has no friends. And what happens? Well, the cool kids, right? Cobra Kai karate kids. They start picking on Daniel. And they bully him and they beat him up. And Daniel's afraid. Daniel's afraid. There are certain hallways that he won't walk down, and he's constantly looking around corners, and he tries to make sure that he doesn't run into certain people or go to certain places. But then Mr. Miyagi comes into his life. You remember? Mr. Miyagi comes into his life, and he defends him, he trains him, he protects him, he cares for him. And Daniel's life is transformed, it's changed. He's no longer afraid in the halls, and he's no longer worried about who might be lurking behind the corners. His life has changed. And his life has changed because Mr. Miyagi has come into his life and made him secure. Now, friends, that's a funny illustration to make in comparison to Jesus, but the truth of the matter is, is that if you are resting in Christ, if you are trusting in his resurrection, then you are more secure than you ever could be otherwise. That if you are trusting in Christ, you too are secure, perfectly secure. So why do we live like we're not? I mean, the Corinthians, they live like their security was in jeopardy. We see it in verses 29 and 30. Paul says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? Now, I imagine you're kind of wondering, okay, what's going on here, right? There are people being baptized on behalf of the dead. Uh, there, there are lots of interpretations for this. In fact, I came across one commentator who said that he personally had uh, come across 40 different interpretations for this passage, 40 different ones. So we're going to start with the 40th and work our way. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just joking. Now, I'll just share with you what I think is going on in this passage. You see, it's become clear that people have died, right? They've died, and their friends and their family members are concerned for their eternal state. And so out of concern for them and to assure that those who have died will be with the Lord, the living are baptized on behalf of the dead. Now, Paul isn't condoning this behavior. He's saying it's illogical. It makes no sense for those who are in the Lord, right? I mean, he says, if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? That, that's a rhetorical question. The answer should be, we're not. We're not. It is illogical to do this because we need not worry about their or our security because in the Lord, we are perfectly secure. Now, listen, I don't think any of y'all are seeking to be baptized on behalf of the dead. In fact, in my 13-ish years of being a pastor, no one's ever come to me and asked for that, which, you know, I'm thankful for. That's, that's good. But we're like the Corinthians in that we live like we're not secure. Right? We're overwhelmed by worry. We try to earn God's favor. We justify our standing. We're afraid of man. We are anxious about the future. I mean, we are, aren't we? 
I feel it. Worry, concern, anxiety. I feel that in my heart. I know you do. But friends, if you're trusting in Jesus and his resurrection, you belong to the king of the universe. The king of the universe. And his resurrection assures us not only of our eternal security, but our security moment by moment. I mean, think about what the resurrected Jesus said in Matthew 28 to his disciples. He said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Or the promise made in Hebrews that God will never leave us nor forsake us. Or what Paul says at the end of Romans 8, that beautiful passage when he declares that I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you hear that? Nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing. There is not a power or authority in this world or in the next that is strong enough to remove you from the grip of God. That's what Jesus himself said, right, of his disciples. He said that we are in the palm of the Father's hand and there is no one strong enough to cause him to relinquish that grip. That's who we are. And so I don't know what you're wrestling with this morning. I don't know your doubts. I don't know your worries. I don't know what you bring into this place. But whatever it is, Jesus' resurrection means that he is stronger than your doubts and he is more powerful than your circumstance and you are perfectly secure in him and nothing can separate us from him because in the resurrection we are secure and because of the resurrection we have life but finally because of the resurrection we have purpose we see this in verses 32 through 34 what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. You see, what Paul is saying is that if there is no resurrection, then all we have is today. All that matters is this moment. So eat and drink and be merry, because tomorrow we die. But what Paul is telling us and what the scriptures confirms is that there is more to life than food and drink and possessions and momentary pleasures. Our lives have purpose in living for God. I mean, that's what Paul's getting at when he says, do not go on sinning, right? That's living for God. That living as God intended us to live means that we no longer sin, that we turn away from our sin, that we repent of it and we flee from it. We do not go on sinning. So as we seek to live for God, we should be asking ourselves, so what are those sins that we are comfortable with? What are those sins in our hearts that, that we are clinging to and we are massaging and we don't want anyone to come near? Not what are the sins that other people struggle with. I mean, that's, that's easy to figure those out, right? Not, not those sins that, that other people struggle with that make our stomachs turn and make us feel uncomfortable. What are the sins that we don't feel uncomfortable with in our own lives. Sins like porn or lust or gossip. 
self-righteousness that's disguised as righteous indignation, being quarrelsome, stirring up strife, loving money, griping, complaining. I was thinking about that one this week. How easy it is for us to just complain, for us to gripe, right? For us, like for me. It feels sometimes like the internet was created so that we could have a place to complain and everybody can hear all our complaints, right? I mean, it's easy to, isn't it? It just rolls off the tongue. We don't even give it a second thought. We complain about our family. We complain about our spouse. We complain about our kids. We complain about our parents. We complain about our church, our school. We complain about our city. We complain about our country. We complain about everybody else. We complain about people complaining. feel very comfortable doing it, don't we? But you know, Paul in Philippians 2 says to do all things without grumbling. And we're told to use our words to build others up, not to tear them down. Paul says, do not go on sinning. It's not just complaining, it's not just griping. I mean, I could bring up any one of those, right? Love of money, lust, self-righteousness. We feel very comfortable with them. But y'all, we're people of the resurrection. And so our lives are to reflect the resurrection. And so that means that if we are trusting in Jesus, it means that you are dead to your sin. And we are alive to God. And so it means that those sins, those sins that we feel comfortable with, we need to ask the Lord, make us uncomfortable. Show them to us so that we would repent of them, so that we would kill them, so that we would flee from them, so that we would live for God. That is what it means to have purpose, to live for God, but also the purpose that he gives us is to make him known. Look at the end of verse 34. He says, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame, that there are those who do not know the Lord, that they don't know the knowledge of God. And what is it that people who need to know? What is it that they need to know about God? That God has loved this world so much that he sent his son to live and to die and to rise again. That the only hope for salvation, the only hope for life is in Christ. And y'all, that is our responsibility. That is our purpose, to make that message known. To proclaim the knowledge of God and his saving work through Jesus isn't just what we need. It is what our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers and our classmates, it is what the world is in need of. That is what we do. We make him known. And so who in your life needs to hear this message? Who in your circles needs to know the goodness of Jesus? Who in your life is without God? Friends, ask the Lord. Provide me opportunities. Open up doors for conversation. Provide times where I can share not just what they need, but but what we need. That life and security, that purpose are only found in the resurrected Jesus. Because friends, the life that they need and the life that we need, and the security that we are all longing for, and the purpose that we are trying to find in everything else, those things can only be found in Christ, the one who is resurrected. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is resurrected that he lives, and because he lives, so too do we. 
And because he lives, we have security. And because he lives, we have purpose. And so we pray that you would equip us to live as resurrected people, that we would turn from our sin, we would cling to righteousness, that we would flee from evil and we would pursue goodness, that you would help us to live out as resurrected people today and all our days. For the good of your people and for the glory of your name, we ask that you would do this. And we pray this in Christ's name. God's people said together, amen.